Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. In 2006, I had the opportunity to interview Elizabeth Colbert up here. She's a staff writer. For the New Yorker and author of Field Notes from a Catastrophe, the first time that I had the opportunity to really engage on on climate change. A year later,、um, I went to the Arctic, 2007, with a Commonwealth Club group.、Uh, we went on a Russian icebreaker, and a、uh, number of scientists:、uh, Ron Prin from MIT, John Hart from Cal, and others. Forrest Sawyer,、uh, Tom Brokaw from NBC News. We flew around in helicopters. We walked on the melting tundra. Uh, we actually saw it, touched it,、uh, tasted it, and、uh, saw the really、uh, shrunken sea ice. I was wearing a Hawaiian shirt in the Arctic,、um, a little bit,、uh, yeah, scary. And came back and said, "What can I do about this? This is really scary. This is really uh, uh, interesting." You know, spent a couple weeks crying, putting together a, a video, and I went to see Steve Schneider. He was nice enough to see me, and I asked him, "This, what about climate change? I didn't know very much." I、uh, said, "Hey, how about we get together, Carl Pope, head of the Sierra Club, and Bjorn Lomborg?" He said, "Don't waste your time. Lomborg's an idiot," <laughs> and laid out a lot of things. Steve became the first member of the, Sci- of the、uh, Climate One Advisory Council, and was privileged,、uh, honored when he chose right here、uh, in 2009 to.、Uh, To launch his last book, Science as a Contact Sport, and that's what you saw saw there.、Uh, in 2010, in the summer,、um, uh, Steve was going to come to dinner、uh, at, at Climate One. We we're having Joe Rome,、uh, who is the blogger from Climate Progress,、uh, was going to be here, and we we're going to have dinner with some people. And、uh, Steve emailed me from Europe、um, a few days before with a headline: Stanford professor wimps out. Uh, and he said that he couldn't make it. He was not in good health, and he needed to quote stop burning the candle at both ends and in the middle too.、Uh, and he died that day on that flight back to San Francisco. So decided, what could we do about this?、Um, and I approached a couple of his friends at Stanford, Larry Goulder,、uh, Paul Ehrlich, and said, how about we do an award? I didn't know him as well as many people at Stanford, many of the people we just spoke with, but I felt like uh, uh, really.、Um, Incumbent upon me to do something, so we formed the award last year. We were thrilled that Richard Alley was the first、uh, winner of the Stephen Schneider Climate Communication Award、uh, here, and he's the host, as you heard, of a PBS documentary that's, that's worth 
uh, worth watching. And I promise you we're going to do this every year, and we will uh, have natural and also social scientists, and I assure you they will not all be men. Um, so with that, I'd like to invite this year's winner, uh, Dr. James Hampson, to join me um, on stage. I interview a lot of fantastic people in this room, and that doesn't happen very often. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. In 1988, NASA scientist James Hansen told a congressional hearing that it was 99% certain that burning fossil fuels was heating the Earth's atmosphere. The next day, a New York Times headline proclaimed, quote, global warming has begun, expert tells Senate. Quarter century later, Dr. Hansen and other scientists are still striving to convince much of the United States that basic scientific observations. Seas are rising, glaciers are disappearing, floods are increasing. Humans are the cause. About half of Americans now accept that fact. 40% do not, according to Gallup. Over the next hour, we will discuss climate science, communication, public policy, and opinion with James Hansen and our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club of California in San Francisco. Today, Dr. Hansen is receiving the 2012 Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication bestowed by Climate One. Stephen Schneider was a pioneering scientist at Stanford who was involved in the formation of Climate One, which is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club. So please welcome Dr. Hansen to Climate One. Dr. Hansen, welcome back. It's been two years since you were here. Uh, I'd like to begin with Hurricane Sandy. Uh, you are a new, teach at Columbia. You live in Manhattan. Where were you when Sandy was approaching and when Sandy hit New York? I was uh, on our farm in Kintnersville, Pennsylvania, where we ended up losing power for the better part of a week. And... Four big trees blown over, the railings blown off our our uh, <clears throat> deck, and uh, windows blown out of the barn. So even in Pennsylvania, which is <laughs> separated from the Atlantic Ocean by by New Jersey, we still uh, thanks New Jersey. <laughs> New Jersey didn't uh, didn't do much to buffer it, but that's where I was, and and we you know the the lights went out. And and we heard these noises on the on the second floor as the as these railings were getting blown down. It was a it was a little uh, yeah, it was an interesting experience. Your first first biggest storm like that? Have you had other storms? Or was this bigger than? Ah, uh, I think this was the biggest one that I was in. Even though I'm from Western Iowa, where we would get these tornado warnings all the time and have to go to the basement. But um, we never got hit by a tornado. So I think this was the biggest one that I was in. And then when did you go to New York, and what did you see when you went into Manhattan? I, I drove to New York <coughs> excitedly as a 25-year-old graduate from Professor Ben Allen's uh, physics department at the University of Iowa in 1967, where I met Steve Schneider, who was a student at that time, 
And uh, if I could just say a couple words about Steve, uh, it's kind of it's it's ironic that I'm getting Steve Schneider Award because we could not have been more opposite. Uh, he had the gift of gab. You know, he's so articulate as a student. And and as a postdoc, so when I, I then I went off to the Netherlands where I met my wife, who then I, I I came who eventually became my wife. But I when I came back to the Institute for Space Studies, Steve was then a postdoc at the institute. And um, as I say, we couldn't have been more opposite. He, he as I was this taciturn uh, Midwest scientist who wanted to do the numbers and do my science and. I, not talk about it, but he would come to my door. He would be in the door of my office and talking to me, and eventually I would turn around and be working on my desk, and he, somehow he couldn't take the hint. But, uh, but when, when Anique would, who was then my girlfriend, would visit me, then she would see that, well, I really didn't want to talk to Steve. So she would talk to him, and th- that was good. It, let me try to work. But if you try to work, you know, like when the television is on and you're trying to do work, it's very hard. <laughs> but anyway, we actually, despite this, we became uh, friends, and Anik and I went mountain climbing with him in the small mountains around New York. But um, And you actually delegated to him some of the communication yeah, requests that came yeah, to because, you. Yeah, because, yeah, because I didn't, when I, after I testified in 1988 and realized all the hoopla that went with that, which is not what I do. I'm not a communicator, and I, I don't enjoy it. So when there were requests for interviews, Steve said he was happy to take them. <laughs> so, so and that div- division of labor was fine with you? Yeah, that was fine with me. Um, and if they insisted on someone on the East Coast, then I'd send it to Michael Oppenheimer. But... Um, Who's uh, at, at Princeton? So, yeah. so on Sandy, when you went back to New York after Sandy, what did you see? And were you thinking? You wrote a book, "Storms of My Grandchildren." Were you thinking, "Ha, ah, the storms I've been writing about are here now"? Well, it was an example. The storm, you know, I titled it "Storms of My Grandchildren" because uh, if we pass the point where Greenland begins to shed ice fast enough to cool the North Atlantic which only requires that you get up to about half a meter or so from Greenland. That will increase the temperature gradients between the high latitudes and low latitudes, and that is what drives cyclonic storms. So some of these storms of the century that we've had, the really big cyclonic storms, which, unlike a hurricane, they stretch for thousands of miles. You can have one that stretches from the Caribbean to Canada and with hurricane-force winds. Now, if we increase the temperature gradients by several degrees, which we can do, we're going to get those type of storms. Um, And Europe will particularly suffer from them. But when you get a hurricane embedded within one, then you get a double dose, and that's what happened with Sandy, and that, that kind of thing will happen, too, if we get stronger cyclonic storms. And the damage goes like the cube, of the wind speed. So it's not like, you know, if the wind speed had been 10 miles per hour less, we wouldn't have had all that damage. Those trees have been standing there for centuries. These were really big trees on our property. Uh, so there haven't been storms like that. 
or those trees wouldn't still have been there. And was there a human fingerprint on Sandy? Can you say how much climate change uh, contributed to the ferocity and the intensity of Sandy? Well, there's a human fingerprint in several ways. Um, the ocean was unusually warm uh, along the eastern seaboard, and it was warmer by more than the global average. So people are saying, oh, you can only credit one quarter of that to global warming. Well, the warming, it's like these extreme events that we're getting, we're getting them much more frequently. Of course, you can't say where and when they're going to be, but if you just, as I say, the climate dice are now loaded, and they're loaded in such a way that not only do we get more unusually warm seasons, but those which are most extreme are much more frequent than they used to be. So this this warm patch of water, I would say we, you would not have had, unlikely that you would have had such extreme warming without this global warming underneath that. So that's one thing. But in addition, the global warming makes more water vapor in the atmosphere, which makes the rainfall heavier and the floods uh, greater. Uh, so there is a connection with uh, global warming, even though, as scientists always like to say, well, you can't blame a single event and connect that in a, in a simple way to global warming, but the frequency and, ext- and extreme extremity of those events you can connect to global warming in a very straightforward way. So I'd- heard from some people that, that hurricanes was where the data was less firm. Sea level rise was very good data. Uh, precipitation events, floods was very good data. But hurricanes well, is where people who are skeptics or deniers like to say, aha, not so. The, the frequency of occurrence of hurricanes is affected by many factors, not just the global temperature, but the storms that are driven by latent heat uh, that are uh, have their fuel from latent heat, and that includes hurricanes, thunderstorms, tornadoes. You have more fuel for those. So the strongest ones are going to be stronger. The number of hurricanes is, is a, is, is a diff, is more difficult, and that is a matter of research. But the region in which you can possibly have hurricanes is expanding, and the seasons in which you can have, uh, Sandy was the end of October. It's very unlikely that we could have had that without um, the fact that the seasons are now getting longer. The warm season is getting longer. So what can you say about the probability of more Sandys, bigger Sandys, a bigger area of the country, the world, that that could have something like Superstorm Sandy? Well, the, the strong storms are, if we continue down this path, and I don't think we need to continue down this path, uh, we're going to have more strong storms that's that's clear as i said the the fuel is is uh, the latent energy that you get from uh, water vapor the author and advocate uh, paul hawken has often said that two category 5 storms up the i95 corridor in one year would be a game changer for the united states that that's when people would wake up that's basically happened two yeah. large storms up yeah. the eastern seaboard yeah. in one year is it a game changer um, well, it, it could be. It does require that we put the pressure on the political system uh, that causes it to be a game changer. And uh, 
we need to be um, doing the right things. Ask, uh, you know, we need to put pressure on the system. And it's not just saying do something. You have to actually look at what the politicians are proposing to do. And you, unlike a lot of scientists, actually went and got arrested and have kind of gone from a scientist to an advocate. Do you think that's the right way? Uh, Civil disobedience, direct action, is a way to pressure the government? Well, that's one. I I think peaceful uh, disobedience is one way to draw attention. Uh, I'm not suggesting that young scientists do that uh, and get an arrest record, but when you're my age, it's it's fine. Uh, but, but again, it's important to really think through the problem, through the solution. I, and I, I really object to uh, politicians and others who say scientists should j- just stick to the narrow science and not look at the whole problem because you do have to connect the dots. And scientists are actually ch- trained to be objective and to understand um, complex problems, and this is a complex problem. But some people would say that your activism clouds your science. Well, the science has to be judged on its own merits. I frankly think that the scrutiny of my papers has become greater. <laughs> and But anyway, they have By the to... FBI, or who are you talking about? <laughs> no, I'm talking about... Uh, Scientists. Not, not even as much the scientists as editors... You know they're very they're very cautious. Uh, even when I recently got the strongest reviews possible, the highest ratings on a paper that I submitted to the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, the editor was apparently um, got a little worried when he saw the title of the paper, which was "The Case for Young People in Nature," and there were statements in the abstract which apparently attracted his attention. So he gave the paper to the editorial board, and the anonymous editorial board says scientists should not be making normative statements about intergenerational injustice and such things. So I think, I frankly find (laughs) that in some ways it's uh, become harder. Uh, So anyway, the science... You're held to a higher bar, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it it becomes, yeah. And back on... Pressuring the government. So direct civil disobedience is one way. What, what are other ways that can... You say this, the, you know, the science is clear, government is the problem. How can well, the government be pressured? Yeah, there, there are multiple ways, and I think we need to use a number of them. One of them that we're using is to file lawsuits against the government to do their job. So our children's trust is has filed a suit against the federal government and against some state governments asking the court to require the government to give a plan for how it's going to protect the rights of young people. Whether this will work, I don't know, because courts do not tend to get way out in front of the public. In the case of civil rights, that tactic worked eventually, but by that time, and the courts told the government that they should desegregate schools, give a plan, how you're going to give equal rights to 
uh, minority children. And But by that time, the public was marching in the street. Uh, so we have to get the public behind this, but also we have... We have uh, in a democratic process. We need to try to influence that with the people we elect and the things that we ask of them. So, for example, there's an organization called uh, Citizens Climate Lobby, and they now exist in. Uh, apparently, some of them are here. <laughs> Infiltrated. They, they, they have they've doubled in size each year the last four years, and they now exist in all 50 states, and they are going to visit their congresspeople, writing op-eds, and in particular, they're advocating a putting a price on carbon emissions, which on carbon, which would be collected from fossil fuel companies at the source, at the domestic mine or the port of entry, and the money would be distributed 100% to the public on equal amount to each legal resident of the country on a per capita basis. That would provide the... Uh, that's what is essential. If As long as fossil fuels are the cheapest energy, then people will keep burning them. And they're only cheapest because they... Partly they're subsidized, but mainly because they don't pay their cost to society. So the air and water pollution that they produce causes lots of health problems and about 40,000 deaths a year in the United States and about a million worldwide. All those health costs are borne by the public, not by the fossil fuel companies. The climate costs, which are already enormous, $50 billion for New York from Sandy, 50 billion dollars in New Jersey, uh, the drought of last summer. These are these have enormous cost. Who pays those? The taxpayers, basically. That drought alone took half a point off of uh, GDP growth. Some estimate, yeah, so, so uh, those costs are not built into the fossil fuels, and they should be. And the way, so what you should do is have this gradually rising price on carbon collected from the fossil fuel companies with 100% distributed to the public. It would spur the economy. And um, What do the fossil fuel companies think about that? You know, the fossil fuel companies, well, they are the problem in a sense, but, uh, you know, I dis- described this to uh, a meeting of international labor leaders, and I said, if you do this, then the marketplace will make the decisions. Instead of the government saying, let's subsidize solar panels or let's subsidize this, the government usually doesn't get things right. And it doesn't provide an incentive for all the other things that could help. And there may be things that are much better than solar panels. So you have to just put the price on carbon. Let the marketplace decide whether it's solar panels or windmills or energy efficiency or some things that we haven't thought of. Uh, but this, an international labor leader stood up and said, that's libertarian, letting the marketplace. Uh, uh, of course, it is libertarian with a small L, but it's also populist because most people are going to get more in their dividend and, and it gives them the opportunity to reduce their carbon footprint and and make money in the process, but it's also democratic because it treats everybody equally. 
And and I was going to say the other group. Oh, the when I gave a talk at Grover Norquist's uh, Wednesday meeting. Oh, that must have been interesting. One of the one of the, this was at the the I I, I gave. There was first a meeting with him and some of the Republican leaders, uh, which was open. And then there was one which was closed, and I can't talk about that one. But I'm sure it was at the first one. That one. (laughs) 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 One of them said, uh, that's income redistribution. Well, yeah, it is. The people who do a good job will get some of the money <laughs> from somebody else. and uh, But that's what, if we don't do something like that, that's, you see, we would reach, if we did that, we would reach tipping points where alternatives would be cheaper than, say, coal. And then you would quickly phase out the fossil fuel. So you, you would then leave it in the ground. And that's what we have to do. British Columbia is doing something like this. Maybe there's some different details, but British Columbia replaced one kind of tax. It was a payroll or corporate tax yep. and, and imposed a carbon tax. Now, you think that's not high enough, but it didn't. Well, example, I, I think the problem with that is, and Grover Norquist, by the way, he did decide, well, y- y- you know, the thing I think what convinces conservatives is the fact that once they are smart enough and th- those who are smart enough to realize we're not making this stuff up, and 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 they're most, and I think a lot of them are smart enough to realize that, then they start to think, well, gee, if we let, if we continue to deny this, we'll reach a point where things happen, like super Sandys, and then the government's going to, it's, that's Pearl Harbor, and the government will take over, like. The government took over Detroit and said, you can't make cars anymore. You're going to make airplanes, and you're not going to make money. <laughs> um, they don't want that to happen. So um, They want to do something about it before. Intervention yeah. now is better than more intervention later, more government right. intervention But later. I forgot what your question was. Well, British Columbia. Oh, British Columbia. Uh, yeah, let me, because I, like I, that do, example. I do want to comment on British Columbia. because And so... Grover Norquist uh, said, well, maybe a tax is okay if we remove some other tax, equal amount. So it's revenue neutral. And then within one day, he changed his mind because uh, uh, undoubtedly some people helped him <laughs> change his mind. But I, I sent him a note and said you, that you're right because if you replace one tax with another, the public will soon forget about that one that went away and they're going to see every day at the pump, they're going to see their gasoline is costing them more, and they're going to object, and they're not going to let it go up. So that system of trading taxes I don't think is the right one. I think instead of reducing another tax, give the money to the public. It will stimulate the economy. It will lead to innovations because then as long as the entrepreneurs know that that price is going to keep going up, they're going to work very hard on finding alternatives. Just one more thing on British Columbia, and I'll let go of it, is what they put a price on carbon in place. 
It is lower than it you would probably want it. But they still reelected the government right. that did that. It did not wreck yeah. the economy. It is still an example of right. a carbon price that doesn't tank the economy that can be a step in the right direction. Yeah. That's, uh, it's it's, not, it's an, not an unuseful thing. But if you look at their carbon emissions, you're not going to find them going down. We have to actually get carbon emissions to go down at a rapid rate. And that's only going to happen with a substantial price, which is rising over time. Well, and that's why, I, you know, a state like California, which is a leader, which really has people who understand this and want to do something about it. So I'm very disappointed when they choose a half-baked system like cap-and-trade with offsets. So let's talk about that California system. Uh, there's a law signed by Governor Schwarzenegger, AB 32. Cap-and-trade is 20% of that system. It gets most of the political attention and, and ink. And you're a critic of cap-and-trade because... Because it's not, it's it's half-assed. It's, it's, it's going because they gave away too many free allowances to polluters? You know, so there was this Waxman-Markey bill, 3,000 pages long. The lobbyists controlled that so that it had giveaways to utilities, uh, to fossil fuel industry, and it brings big banks into it. Why do you want big banks in this problem? Why should they be making money? Every cent that they make is coming out of the public's hide. And they add absolutely nothing. What you want is a system which is very simple, uh, it, and it makes clear. You know, there's this, this, they will, people will see in, in the marketplace that something that is using fossil fuels is going to cost more because of that carbon price. And so they will make their decisions based on that. And there's no money going to banks at all. You don't want a, a system with caps where then you have this trading and you have derivatives and you have markets that then collapse and you don't actually reduce emissions much. That's been tried in Europe and it, it didn't do much. And we have we have to really get major reductions. The advocates of cap-and-trade would say it allows for price variability, but an environmental outcome that is more certain than no. with, the, with the carbon tax. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's certain that it won't be effective. That's what's certain. Because it, it, of you, you get, you, you get that, that's it. Because of the offsets and, and the carve-outs and the scheming and gaming by uh, traders? Yeah, the, they're, they're saying, well, first of all, you don't even know. All we really know is that we have to reduce emissions as rapidly as we practically can. And unfortunately, 450 ppm. Parts per million of Parts carbon per million of CO2 is, is a disaster scenario on the long run. We're actually going to have, you know, 450 ppm would make the planet warmer than it was during the EMEAN. So 120,000 years ago, the last interglacial period, when sea level is now estimated was at least six meters higher than it is now. Uh, so we would be setting the planet on a path to uh, disasters. We can't say when the ice sheets are going to melt enough to cause that large sea level rise. But, um, you know, we already can see with the... CO2 in the atmosphere now, which is about 390 or 300, between 390 and 395, but the system has not come to equilibrium with that. We know that the planet is now out of 
equilibrium of about seven-tenths of a watt per meter squared, which means there's almost as much warming in the pipeline as that which has already occurred. And look what's happening with eight-tenths of a degree warming now. And if we're going to double that, uh, so what we really are going to have to do, the right, and I understand why, I mean, people, the, People who are trying to argue for this saying, well, if you ask for something that seems unrealistic, then, then people will dismiss you. Well, you have to say what's honest. We have to keep the climate close to the Holocene. Civilization developed during the last several thousand years, the Holocene, which was, we were not at the peak Holocene temperature at the pre-industrial, but now we've We've, we've probably risen out of the Holocene range because sea level, for example, is now going up 3.1 millimeters a year, which is 3.1 meters per millennium. It's way out of, of the range that existed during the Holocene. So we're already a little bit above the Holocene. We've got to stay close to the Holocene if we want to have a stable climate. And that's what, and that's, that's, that's still possible. Because there are lots of ways we can actually draw CO2 out of the atmosphere with better agricultural practices and reforestation. So it's not an, an impossible problem, but the key thing is we've got to start to get off fossil fuels soon. We can't burn all the fossil fuels. It's really funny. I've been going around for five years showing these bar graphs for how much carbon there is in, in um, oil, gas, which is less than oil, and coal, which is much larger. And then I also had these unconventional fossil fuels. I hardly, sometimes I didn't even show those because I didn't think anybody's going to be so stupid as to burn unconventional fossil fuels like tar sands and tar shale. But, but I was showing, and I have the purple part on the bottom of those bars, and showing this is only a small fraction of the total fossil fuels. We can't, we cannot burn all these fossil fuels without going to the ice-free state, which means sea level 250 feet higher. And so it's just crazy. But uh, somehow I never, never made that sink in. And so now then Bill McKibben, uh, you know, I've talked with him frequently, and he's a much better writer. And he wrote this article for Rolling Stone. He said the same thing, but he said it in a much better way. And suddenly he said the reserves that these oil companies are counting on their books and their stock prices are based on this those are five times greater than what we can burn and still hope to have a livable planet. And then, and then suddenly some people started to realize that we've, got, we've got a problem. And you at one point said that uh, you think some of those oil executives or energy executives are they, they could crimes be our against best. humanity. Oh, well, let's go to the other side. They are the, the I, I sometimes say, the captains of industry are the ones who can really help us solve this. And the, they're not, these are smart people. You don't get to be the top dog in these organizations unless you're pretty smart and pretty capable. And you know, I've, I've met with Jim Rogers of, uh, Duke Energy. The, Duke Energy and, and then, uh, the, the other one in New Jersey, the big, uh, big one, and then the Florida Light and Power, and I forget the names, but all these guys say uh, that if you would give us an knowledge of how that carbon price is going to rise, we can deal with that. We will make the investments so that electricity becomes carbon-free over a few decades. They, But we've got to 
give them that. If we don't give them that, then they're not going to do it. As long as they can get away with coal plants as the cheapest energy or now gas as the cheapest, that's what they will use. So we, they, we, some of them have a heart and they understand this and they have children and grandchildren too. So they, they could be our friend, but as long as, but if they're doing like the CEO of ExxonMobil and like the Koch brothers and if they fund disinformation and actually changing textbooks, that's the thing which I'm, I'm over between Christmas and New Year's, I have an appointment to talk to legal scholars again because I think we should file suits against those people for crimes against humanity because they know they 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 are they are they are smart enough to know what they're doing and they they should be held responsible and what's the status of you mentioned the atmospheric trust litigation i believe there was a judge in texas of all places that actually uh, nibbled at that one. So what's the status? You've sued, uh, you, the suit against California was, uh, disbanded. You're still going forward with some other ones. Yeah. And your hope is you want to plan from these governments to have yeah. the courts force them to do something. Yeah. It looks promising in a couple of the states. And I can't, I don't really know the details, but that's what the legal scholar has told me and the, uh, Julia Olson, who's the head of the uh, Our Children's, Our Children's Trust, Trust. Uh, the federal court, the federal case. Unfortunately, uh, the judge in the District of Columbia, who we thought was would be favorable, um, ruled against it, saying that it, it should first go to EPA. That EPA has responsibility, not the courts, and. Our Children's Trust is appealing that um, decision. but there, And there's also, I just, back from the Netherlands, where um, I went to help launch a case against the Dutch government. They're amazing. I mean, they're at sea, basically at sea level, um, and yet they are burning coal, and they're, and they're, the, most recent government there is pretty much in denial about this problem. Uh, but I, that, I, they're, they're, they're an <laughs> um, intelligent country. So I think there's a good hope that the courts there might, might uh, have a... Do something about it. Do something, yeah. Should we do research on geoengineering? Geoengineering is the idea of putting things into the atmosphere to buy some time, to deflect some solar radiation, some heat, some light. Uh, we may need that as an insurance policy if things get that sort of break the glass, pull the uh, emergency switch situation. Yeah, well, research, um, we should understand the system. Um, and some of the Burning fossil fuels is geoengineering, and there would be some ways of drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere, which makes sense. And that, you, you know, you may want to. One reason to develop carbon capture and storage is not just to let us burn fossil fuels and without putting CO2, but also because we're probably going to have to suck some CO2 out of the atmosphere. 
because 450 ppm is certainly too much. Um, and so we could burn biofuels in a power plant and capture the CO2 and then sequester it. So that's a kind of geoengineering, which I would call soft geoengineering. The idea of putting up one pollutant to block the effects of a different pollutant doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. And furthermore, putting up reflection, reflecting sunlight away will not solve the ocean acidification problem. So... Um, not much there. Not much there, yeah. But as we, there's also aerosols that come partly from coal burning, and if we reduce coal burning, they reduce the aerosols, which could exacerbate yeah. warming. Yeah. And uh, I'm actually working on a paper which is called Doubling Down on the Faustian Bargain. The, the, the aerosols are a Faustian bargain, are part of the Faustian bargain. By, by burning coal and putting the aerosols up there and, and reflecting some sunlight, we minimize the warming. But those aerosols only stay up there five days. So once we stop burning, they're going to fall out, and then we get the full warming. Well, in the last 10 years, if you look at um, the fossil fuel burning, which had been going up 1.5% per year, suddenly started going up 3% a year as China and India really kicked in. Other things being equal, if you change the rate of, of uh, emission of CO2 to the atmosphere, the so-called airborne fraction, the fraction of the CO2 that appears in the atmosphere, should increase uh, be, simply because that quick I- injection of CO2 causes the ocean surface layers to be relatively saturated, so it can't get into the ocean as fast as it used to. But what's actually happened in the last 12 years is the airborne fraction has plummeted. It's now only about 40%. The other 60% is disappearing, and it's not mostly going into the ocean. A good fraction of it is being taken up somehow by the terrestrial biosphere. And I think that's because of the... We're doubling, I think we're doubling down on the Faustian bargain because we're fertilizing the terrestrial biosphere both with the CO2 in the atmosphere and the combination of that with more nitrogen, which we're spreading... Part of it, the nitrogen is being spread around by these aerosols, which China and India are putting out, and it's actually reaching Canada, and some of it's reaching Asia. And so that... And a lot of nitrogen comes from fertilizing. But in any case, um, I think we're I think we're doubling down. That it's all the more reason why we've got to get off this rapid curve. We've got to get on a downward curve, and the only way that's going to happen is if we put a price on carbon. If you're just joining us, uh, our guest today, at Climate One, is Dr. James Hansen, head of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies and adjunct professor at Columbia University's Earth Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. How would you grade President Obama in addressing climate change? He missed a great opportunity to be a great president. You know, when he if when he was elected and had 70% popularity four years ago, he could have gone to the public and, like Franklin Roosevelt, explained 
that for the sake of our national defense, for the sake of the economy, uh, and for the sake of climate, we should uh, we should deal with this problem in an honest way, putting a price on carbon. You know, and I <laughs> when I was in the United Kingdom with with Anique after um, she had a mild heart attack there, so I was stuck there for a week. This was right after. He was elected before he took office. So we wrote a letter to him and explained this to him. And I tried to get John Holdren to deliver it to him, but he wasn't sworn in yet, so he couldn't do it. The president's science advisor. Yeah. <clears throat> but that, it's, it's a shame because he said he understood the problem. He said we have a planet in peril. But in a way, I don't think he was getting very good advice. I think that people were telling him, well, we need more solar panels and we need more efficient vehicles. And those things are true, but they're not going to solve the problem by themselves. Without a price on carbon, all you do by reducing your emissions in those ways is reduce the demand for the fossil fuel, make it cheaper, and somebody else will burn it. We have to actually leave those fossil fuels in the ground most of what remains. And the only way that will happen is if they're an honest, if they're honestly priced. Right now they're heavily subsidized by you, the public. And people would say even if the US does something bold, if he went big in a second term, uh, China and India would still continue to burn as much coal and oil as they can get their hands on to have the standard of living that you and I and everyone in this room and everyone listening to this enjoys. Yeah, that's that's, um, that's, their that's, right. not, that's wrong, and um, the reason is if we put a price on carbon, the World Trade Organization rules, preferably we in Europe or we in China, you'd rather not have the United States alone, but we're so still so powerful economically that we, we could even go along and say we're going to put a border duty on products from countries that do not have a carbon fee. That's equivalent, so it's it's fair. And it would be an enormous incentive for that other country, China or other country, to put to put their own carbon price on, because then they could collect the money rather than have us collecting it at our border. That's the only way that you can get an international or agreement. You can't do it by begging. The, the Kyoto Protocol approach was to beg. Beg all the other countries to take some target and then reach that target without any... And, of course, even though many countries agreed, like Canada, they soon abandoned it. When it's not convenient, they abandon it. You have to... The only way you can enforce it is with a price. And that... So that could be done. And, and you know, I was in China, and the China Chinese leaders understand this. They don't deny the climate problem. They, they, they are engineers and they're rational and uh, they don't want to be addicted to fossil fuels the way the United States is and have to protect a supply line around the world. So they are number one in solar po- panels, wind power, and nuclear power, building 30 nuclear power plants. So uh, I, I don't, but of course they do have a major problem with so many people in poverty and they're, and they need, they know they need to get them out of poverty or they may, their government may not 
survive. So, of course, they're doing everything they can to raise the standard of living, but they're planning by the middle of the century to really have all their electricity from from, uh, both India and China are really looking to go non-fossil fuel. But to make that happen soon enough, we have to have a price on carbon. Well, I want to touch quickly on the Keystone XL pipeline, then we're going to have the uh, audience participation. Uh, uh, you've uh, been an opponent of the Keystone XL pipeline. I wonder what you think about Susan Rice, uh, possibly Secretary of State, having holdings in the companies that are going to build that pipeline. Yeah, it's amazing. I, as I said, I thought that it's so obvious that we couldn't be so stupid as to develop the unconventional fossil fuels because they're dirtier, you get less energy per unit carbon, and you get all this other pollution, regional pollution. Um, so we need to try to talk common sense into them, and, and we've, you know, we've done that. I've been arrested <laughs> in the front of the White House because of the tar sands. And there are more and more people who are willing to stand up and protest against those. And I know I sound like a broken record, but just, I've realized that just trying to block an individual carbon source Although that's meritorious, it won't work if we don't have a price on carbon. Yeah, China will just burn it. All right, we're going to invite your uh, participation, and particularly if you haven't had a chance to ask a question. Uh, and I'm going to be assertive about uh, encouraging you to be brief and get to your question so we can get as many people to uh, participate as possible. The line starts with our producer, Jane Ann, uh, right there. And then uh, welcome your comments uh, for... Uh, for, for Dr. Hansen. Uh, let's invite the audience participation. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Congratulations. You deserve this award. And thank you to all the scientists who are here who are providing we policymakers and activists with the information we need. I'm Holly Kaufman. My question is, in addition to the price on carbon for some shorter-term measures, what is your opinion on dealing with some of the shorter-term but higher global warming potential gases like methane, which might not be as politically controversial to deal with. Yes. Uh, I think methane and black carbon and some of the trace gases are, uh, it's important that we deal with those and they may be the way in which we can handle the Faustian bargain. Because as the sulfate aerosols decrease, we've got to try to find uh, a different way to reduce the climate forcing, the um, energy imbalance that's caused by um, re- removing the sulfate. So I, th- I think those are important, but I... I the priority has to be on CO2 on the, uh, because of the fact that if we continue on this path with CO2, we'll get to a point where it's really consequences are too great and very difficult and not impossible for our children to deal with without having great disasters. So I think that they're important and uh, I just don't, talk about them as much as I used to because it's kind of distracting from the main problem, which is the fossil fuel CO2. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Hi. Um, If we were to um, do something like 
pyrolyze uh, sewage, garbage, and agricultural waste? What's the potential for that to remove carbon from the atmosphere? How fast might it be possible to do that? Yeah, we've looked at so-called biochar. Biochar in many, not everywhere, but in some agricultural systems, it can be very beneficial for improving the productivity of the soil. And so that is a uh, one way that we can get some of that excess CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, and it's, you know, in looking at the numbers, it doesn't, it doesn't look huge, and it, but it's, un, it's uncertain how big it can be. And it's one thing that we should be researching in our agricultural schools because it is potentially uh, very helpful. Let's have our next question for Dr. Hansen. Yes. Yes, uh, John Addison, Clean Fleet Report. A, uh, a price on carbon would, of course, encourage energy efficiency, fuel efficiency. Where are you seeing progress there? Where do you think are some of the most effective mechanisms? Technologically, for, uh, well, the, the biggest, the, the quickest thing, it, our energy efficiency in the U.S. is, is not very good. Um, and we've run economic models which suggest that if we put a $10 a ton tax on carbon, increasing $10 a ton per year so that after 10 years it's equivalent to a dollar a gallon on gasoline, that that would reduce um, carbon emissions in the U.S. by 30%, which is about 11 times, that 30% reduction is 11 times greater than the amount of carbon carried by this Keystone XL pipeline. So it just shows how foolish that pipeline is compared to the kind of steps that we should really be taking to ensure our energy independence. Um, but... That, uh, there are multiple ways that that price would affect, uh, would reduce emissions. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, and I don't, I, I don't really know that, that, uh, I sh- should or could actually specify what, which technology is going to do. As I say, the marketplace is going to make those decisions. But there's a lot of potential already. Well, California is twice as efficient as the rest of the nation. It's about equivalent to Europe, which is also twice as efficient as the United States. So there's a lot of potential in just energy efficiency. Um, but, um, anyway. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hi, James Jersey with Firebeat. The uh, ongoing talks in Doha, um, basically focusing on Kyoto, I believe, you've said you sort of have issue with Kyoto. What do you think the United States should be putting forward there, and how can we convince the countries who have equity issues with the United States in our carbon development to participate? What do you propose for that? Um, the United Nations process hasn't done a lot. What do you think should happen there? Yeah, yeah it's... It's, pro- it's they, as I've already said, I think instead of trying to fix the Kyoto process and but keeping the cap and trade system, they, we need to realize that we have to put a price on carbon. Now, now we do 
have a debt to developing countries because the the climate impacts are actually going to be felt and are already beginning to be felt more at the low latitude countries where where more of the developing nations are and yet they have not contributed at all or very very little to that uh, carbon in the atmosphere so we're going to have to figure out some uh, compensation uh, for them and it actually takes not very much money to encourage them to have better practices um, and to restore forests or to preserve forests for example um, so that's that needs to be part of the process but we need to uh, you know um, when I was in the Netherlands uh, a week or two ago, we met a man who um, had in, invented and had this um, this uh, lamp, this sol- powered by solar. So it has a solar panel which can charge up in the daytime. Even on a cloudy day, you, it will charge up. <clears throat> and it will provide light for uh, up to eight hours. It has different strengths depending on how bright you use it. But he was, he was drawing, and he wants to, this to be, replace kerosene lamps. And I, I know about kerosene lamps. I was born on a farm that did not have electricity. And we used kerosene lamps. Um, and my four older sisters all did their homework. After it gets dark, that's what provided the light. And uh, they did their homework uh, and coloring and things by, uh, with these lamps. And, of course, my parents were in fear of them tipping one of these things over and burning down the house. It turns out that there are 15,000 serious burns per day from kerosene lamps in the developing world. And there are, and the women, there are 800 million women and children who are breathing uh, the equivalent of two packs of cigarettes per day from the fumes from kerosene lamps. Uh, and yet, you, with one of this, this uh, little lamp can be, it has a cost of nine to ten dollars. And they're spending 30 cents a day on kerosene. So this thing could, can replace the kerosene lamp uh, with about a, a month's worth of kerosene can replace. So we, so a developing world, anyway, what I'm saying is there are a lot of ways that we can, uh, the de- developing world can jump over uh, technologies and not make the mistakes that we did. And we have to help them do that. That's yeah. part of our debt to them. We should be making an effort to do those sort of things. And I think Secretary Clinton is a big supporter of those uh, solar cook stoves and those other things to do that at a uh, reasonable cost. Let's have our next question. Yes. Yeah, hi. Warren Linney from Kiara Solar. And I just want to thank you for your courage. Um, I've been arrested a few times on these issues as well. It's worth it. Um, my question is, I want to know if you're aware of any Council of Engineers and Scientists that are evaluating and prioritizing the various low-carbon technologies and also the, the ones that may be able to pull out enough carbon from the air, and like carbon engineering, global thermostat, 
in order to have a priority of funding these? And do you know of any fund that's being ready to bear, you know, save life on the planet as well? Well, you see, those, those studies are academic. You know, so we had this nice paper on called Wedges, which said, you know, we can, there's this wedge that could reduce our carbon 10% or 5%, and then there's this wedge, which could do five more, and then there's this wedge, five more. So they list a whole bunch of technologies that might reduce the carbon emissions. In principle, they could do that. And then, actually, when you talk to the authors, they you say, are there any more wedges? They say, oh, yeah, there are a lot more wedges. We just got tired. Uh, you know, so... Y- y- but those things are theoretical. What will cause those, and, and in reality, if you put a price on carbon, some of those wedges would really be great stuff. And they would, uh, you would pass a tipping point, and they would really take a big chunk of the energy. And some of them wouldn't work out at all. But, you know, you just can't do it with theoretical exercises. You, the way that it will work, <laughs> sorry, it's a broken record, but you've got to have a price on carbon. And so, <laughs> surprise. But you talk about the marketplace. One of the ways that the U.S. has reduced its emissions is through switching from coal to gas. And that was government innovation 30 years ago, developing some fracking technology that no one saw a few years ago. And uh, that proponents would say that that switch is a good thing. It's reduced carbon emissions more than Kyoto or anything else has been technology, innovation, and markets. There are two different things there. The gas... Yes, if gas were treated as the transition fuel, allowing us to leave the coal in the ground and be working on the successor to gas so that that's all we burned, then we could actually meet the targets. But that's not what's happening. It's exactly, they're actually going after every fuel they can find. It's fracking in addition to tar sands, in addition to drilling in the Arctic, in addition to mountaintop removal. And in addition to tar shale, that's why they say the United States is going to be the Saudi Arabia of oil. How's that? We're going to cook the Rocky Mountains and drip oil out the bottom. And that's going to be this almost, it's 50% more energy to get that oil out. It, we, and the fracking, we can't do that. There's so much gas if we, if we insist on finding ways. It's actually very expensive and energy intensive to do that, but because we're subsidizing it, they're able to get away with this. And it's about to happen in California in a big way. Well, that's the problem, and there's only one thing that will stop that. (laughs) All right. A price on carbon. we got six minutes left. Let's try to get a couple of questions in. Uh, Quick questions, quick answers. Yes, sir. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, Thanks a lot for your work. Uh, As you said, the issue is very complex. So is there an organization which will train citizens like me on how to explain this issue? to my network? Uh, yeah, that's what I've been told. I, I, I thought that I was writing a book that would allow people to understand this. And I guess some people, even college-educated people, say they have to read it twice. And so it's not... They say it's too technical. So we need uh, clearer... Maybe Mike's book is, I haven't read it yet. Uh, but, but your, your next book's gonna be Letters to Your Granddaughter. Yeah, yeah my next book is gonna be, uh, Sophie's Planet. 
and Sophie is helping me. I'm writing her letters and uh, making sure they're understandable to her. And Sophie is a teenager? Sophie is now 14. She's my oldest grandchild. And I, I'm going to try to make this understandable, more understandable. I'm sure she's smart. Let's have our next question. Yes, sir, welcome. Yeah, hi, uh, Nils Michael Langenborg from the Sustainable Adam Smith. Congratulations on the award. Uh, so Adam Smith wrote about, he said, consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. So if consumption is really the issue here, how do we get all, how do we get everyday Americans to modify their consumption? And how do we get policymakers like Governor Brown, who's sitting in the room here, spoiler alert? And what is his position on this? I would be more than happy to hear. So how do we get people to, uh, to be, to change their behavior? And secondarily, how do we make this fun? Because this is such an intense topic. I mean, you walk out of here and all you want to do is Drink. Okay, Drink. so um, we can we have some wine outside afterwards. Quick yeah. question: We got a few minutes left, so consumption. Yeah, consumption. Well, that again, the carbon price will help with that. They make things, but uh, that is uh, an education thing. Uh, we need to get our children and grandchildren and the public to appreciate nature and things, not just more things, uh, um, but um, that's a that's part of the problem, so and putting a price on it will help a bit. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, we're getting toward the end. Thank you. It is an august pleasure to be here with you, and before I came up, I was going to ask you, what's it like being around your Christmas or Thanksgiving table talking among your family when you get to talk about your passion, because I don't think that you actually talk climate science 26 hours a day. But could you tell us a little bit of your conversations with Sophie? Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that it's appropriate to frighten children. <laughs> and um, I. so the only thing that until... Now, Sophie is finally... I have five grandchildren... Sophie is the oldest, and finally um, I am starting to explain the problem and the fact that there are solutions. But other than that, I just the only thing that I've really done with grandchildren related to this is to try to help them understand nature. So for in particular, as I mentioned in my book, uh, we have... Uh, address the um, monarch butterfly problem. You know, our monarch butterflies, we've noticed on our farm, there are many fewer than there used to be. And that's mainly because, not of global warming, but because of uh, pesticides, which have been used to reduce the number of milkweeds. And that, so therefore, with my grandchildren, we plant milkweeds. And, and then they learn about this remarkable life cycle of monarch butterflies, which migrate all the way to Mexico. Well, I did, I actually put one of my letters to Sophie on my website. And I, and it was worked out very nicely because I then got a letter, I got an email from a scientist in Mexico. These monarch butterflies uh, migrate all the way from Canada to this mountain in Mexico where they hibernate for the winter. Uh, on a, one small region, and this Mexican scientist um, 
is realized that these trees where the butterflies are, are, are uh, hibernating, they're, they're not doing well. The tops of the trees are turning brown because of their, they've had multiple droughts. And, the, and that was one of the things I wanted to get to in my book and, and in explaining to Sophie that the danger to species is the shifting of climate zones. If we go with too large a climate change, that rapid shifting of climate zones is going to put additional pressure on species and cause many of them to go extinct, and then because they're interdependent, ecosystems can collapse. Well, this scientist was trying to convince the Mexican government to plant these seedlings higher up the mountains because it's getting warmer, and for those trees to exist, they need to be in a cooler and, but then he figured, he looked at IPCC, this Intergovernmental Panel, uh, the climate change report, and realized that by 2090, that mountain won't work. So then you've got to try to plant those trees on a different mountain, and you've got to convince those monarch butterflies, which have been programmed to go to that one region, that they've got to go to a different place. Well, we've tried to do that with some species, the whooping crane, which is one that I know about because it almost went extinct. And anyway... But they, they try to guide that whooping crane to a different place so that it's not in danger, it's not in so much danger of having only one place where it can winter. But anyway, the point was, what was the question? It was good. Uh, we got a chance for one last quick question, one quick answer. We're out of time. We've got to present the yeah. award. Yes, sir. Uh, okay, very, very, very quick question. I don't uh, know what the question was, but the answer was good. Okay. okay. Uh, hi, my name is Gerald Harris. I specialize in scenario planning in the energy industry, but you're the first scientist I've heard say something positive about uh, sequestration of carbon. And as I understand it, there's no way that we can store it without a risk of a catastrophic release. So maybe you know something that I don't know about this, but is there any way we can actually store sequestered carbon without the risk of a, a catastrophic release? Well, I think, I think that there are ways, but it's going to be a case of many, you don't want it in your backyard. Is, is very possibly the case. And, you know, we've done so much oil drilling, drilling looking for oil, that this, that it's not clear that most of the continental sites are, are safe. But there are places you could put it offshore where you're putting it at a depth where just the pressure and temperature are such that you don't have to worry about it coming out. So it is, it is possible, but it's going to cost money. So you have to let it let that uh, technology compete against energy efficiency and other forms of energy. And we got to wrap it up there. Our <clears throat> thanks to James Hansen, head of NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, adjunct professor of Columbia's Institute, for his comments here today at Climate One. Okay. I'd like to uh, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to invite uh, Ben Santer up here to present the uh, present the award to uh, to Dr. Hansen. Ben is a member of the jury and a, a climate scientist in his own right at uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab. Jim, you and Steve were pioneers at the frontiers of climate science exploring the role of the oceans in climate change, the role of clouds, the role of aerosol particles. 
and I could spend a lot of time recounting your scientific contributions. I won't. I just want to tell you one very brief story. Back in 1988, I was doing my postdoc in Hamburg. You testified in front of Congress. You said, we see the signal emerging from the noise. That had huge influence on me and on hundreds, thousands of my colleagues. The idea that we could see some coherent human-caused warming signal emerging from the year-to-year and decade-to-decade noise of natural climate variability. It certainly had a discernible influence on my career and on the science I chose to do. <clears throat> Germans have a word, courage. There's not really an English translation for it. And what it means, as best as I can translate it, is um, individuals who show extraordinary courage, not in the extraordinary circumstances of war, but in the extraordinary circumstances of our day-to-day lives. For me, you embodied civil courage. You've shown not only through your science, but also through uh, your defense of the science, uh, through your congressional testimony, through the work that you've done in the last few years telling the world that we don't have the luxury of remaining silent anymore. We have to go and speak truth to power to tell people This is where the chips are lying. This is what the science tells us. It's a real honor and a privilege to, on behalf of the jury, on behalf of Bud Ward, Larry Goulder, and Greg Dalton, present you with the 2012 Steve Schneider Climate Science Communication Award. As you know, Steve had the metaphor of a cloudy crystal ball. (laughs) Hold this up. Getting across the idea that we can't precisely see the the details of what's in the pipeline, as you put it, the shape of things to come for the climate system, but we know enough. We can see clearly enough. Thank you for everything that you've done. It's a real privilege to call you a friend and a colleague. talking about courageous communication and climate communication. A lot of politicians have walked away from this issue, with a few exceptions. Uh, Governor Huntsman is one. Uh, Governor Jerry Brown of California is another. Uh, And I would like to invite invite Governor Jerry Brown to come up here and say a few words. Now it's on. I just wanted to say congratulations. You've been out in the forefront doing great science, but good public policy. So, behalf of California, we are out there in the forefront. As we just heard, the forefront isn't good enough. <laughs> but it's still pretty damn good. So, anyway, keep on doing what you're doing. We've Thanks. got a lot of work to do. Thanks From the idea much. to the execution into the politics, it's a lot of gaps there. And you're helping to close them, and I just wanted to thank you for it. Thanks very much.
for um, Do I need this? You have your own. Okay. Just one more uh, comment about, as I mentioned, Steve Schneider was a friend uh, from way decades ago. Tell you one more thing about him. In his first year as a postdoc, he was, Steve was very outgoing and very, uh, already at that time, he was trying to reach the public. And he wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times. And at that time, the director of the Goddard Institute did not appreciate that sort of thing. <laughs> and he called a meeting of oh, entire people in the building, you know, more than 100 people coming to <laughs> And uh, he really gave it to us, Steve. Uh, and the, the great, the really impressive thing about Steve was, you know, he didn't back down. And so he, even at that time, and he's just this oh, 26 or 27-year-old postdoc, he had the courage to stand up for uh, what he what believed in. So he was really a good example of uh, courage of a scientist at a very early age. So, 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 and so anyway, for... For all those things about Steve, it is a great honor to get a, an award in his name. Thanks.